we was we got disrespected a little bit before the game. Guys calling us out. We're a tougher team. We're grown men over here. We got a whole bunch of gangsters in the locker room. Not thugs, but tough guys on the court. And we went out there and zipped them up at the end of the game. That's our motto, zip them up. And that's what we just did to them. But what do you think? It's right after you were in a, had an at-bat. You didn't have really time to relax between innings. Did that have anything to do with it? No, man. I mean, I just fucking walked to guys. This game's pretty tough. So that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, and get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland. Welcome back to Sports Intoxication. We have a very, very special guest tonight. Uh, we are joined by the usual suspects. Matt? What's up? Hey, everyone. Right. And the lovely and multi-multi-multi-talented Rick Broering of musketeerreport.com, Local 12, and the... Uh, the analyst for the NKU Norse. There was definitely definitely one too many varies, a few too many multis in there, but overall that was a, uh, <laughs> a really nice intro. Thank you. You forgot, you forgot of the course, skinny uh, podcast. Come on. <laughs> yeah, local 12, you know. Uh, the, but yes, the skinny, or as we call it, the scoring podcast or uh, the Brinny podcast. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us, Rick. We... Uh, We've been kind of exchanging messages on Twitter about when we can get you on here because I know how busy you are this time of year with with everything that you got going on, as I just mentioned. Uh, but this seemed like a really good time because some stuff has kind of calmed down with basketball, although it's also just absolutely cranking up. Um, so we appreciate you coming in to enlighten us and our listeners on the happenings of Xavier Basketball. And what better time, fresh off a of Mick Cronin final four, <laughs> that we all suck. Come on, man. I'm, I'm here to do your podcast. You're going to do – no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, look, <laughs> look, I I, uh, I think this actually is the best time, and that's kind of – we were talking a week ago about doing this, and I was like, well, here's the thing. The Paul Scruggs piece to this changes everything, so let's wait until he announces and then talk about it because it makes more sense to kind of talk about where things are at and where they're going. Without a doubt. And it's such a huge, huge piece that um, is now, as we know, returning to Xavier along with for his super senior season, along with Nate Johnson. Um, and really, if you were to, I think from a Xavier fan perspective, if you were to choose two guys that you wanted to come back, those two guys would, would be the top two. I think Nate, honestly, I think Nate makes more sense because if you don't get Nate back, you have to go for a shooter as a really high priority. Um, and then obviously the calming presence of Paul Scruggs, his ability to score, his ability to distribute, his ability to rebound and defend uh, is great. So right there, I mean, that just kind of leads into something, but what's your initial impression of the team, I know that there's still a lot of balls in the air as far as transfers and everything like that. But knowing what we know, yeah, I mean, the, your there initial... is, but at the same time, there kind of isn't now that we know Nate and, and Paul are coming back. I mean, the the word I've gotten from sources inside the program is that they're being very selective right now in the transfer portal and trying to make sure 
that they have the right fit because they've got most of their starters figured out. In fact, if you try to figure out exactly who the starting lineup is right now, you're leaving somebody out that you probably thought was going to be a starter after the year ended. So I think in a lot of ways, they kind of know what they have. Yes, they are speaking to every single transfer that goes into the portal because that's how Travis Steele operates. Um, but very few of those guys have really been serious targets, I would say. And it's pretty clear that the one position where they feel they need to upgrade is the, the forward spot. And obviously that was a weakness the past two seasons. And they, they have some young talent coming in in this freshman class, but they feel like they need to go out and get some type of upgrade at the four. And I think that could come in one of two ways. We've talked a lot about it on the message board, whether that be a more defensive-minded, toughness rebounder type to complement Zach Fremantle and what he lacks, or whether it be more of a really skilled shooter. So one, you get more shooting in the lineup, which I think this team could use. And two, you really lean full into this idea of Travis Steele pushing this team towards a more open, offensive-minded style of play going forward into the future. So he hasn't really done that yet. When things got tough last year, he seemed to revert back to wanting to put his best defensive lineups on the floor, and maybe that's just because he felt he didn't have enough firepower. But I think that's – but either way, at that forward spot, you could go, whether it be more defense and toughness or more offense and shooting. So based on what we've got in Zach Fremantle, what do you think is the route that they should go? Defense and rebounding or all in, let's get another shooter and forget defense? I'm always in on the offensive route. I just think shooting is the most important part of the game. Uh, look at Iowa. Iowa, you know, they didn't make the run people wanted maybe, but – they had one hell of a season without being able to play a lick of defense. Uh, so I think you can mask a lot of things if you can put the ball in the basket at a high clip and you have uh, high IQ players on the offensive end. Now, ideally, yeah, you would find a little more toughness and length and, and rebounding to go with Zach Fremantle. But if given the choice and you've got a, a surefire three-point shooter and score at the forward or a guy who's going to be a, a defense first guy and, and a good rebounder, I'm, I'm taking the former option. So, Rick, why, we just mentioned Fremantle, um, and obviously he has got a, a boatload of talent on the offensive end. I, I think um, one thing that I, I just kind of struggle with watching him and kind of this Xavier team this year was the lack of just kind of toughness inside, and I'm not alone in that, but – um, especially when you get into the Big East play. And it seems like the five position really for Xavier really struggled this year in terms of containing the opposition's big men. And I know Fremantle led the Big East in rebounding, uh, or at least he was at one point. I don't know if he finished that way. But do you think this team kind of um, – not misses, but would go back to trying to get a guy like a, and you're not going to find exactly him, but a guy like a Tyree Jones or someone who is is really tough down low and can get you the offensive rebounds when the shots aren't falling because it seems like they could have won a couple games if they had that type of presence down low. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible, but I guess I would throw this back at you. Who would you rather have playing, Tyreek Jones or Zach Fremantle? Who's going to get more minutes if you're the coach? If you have both those guys. Well, I think, I mean, that's, that's fair and probably Fremantle, but 
you couldn't you argue that they win a St. John's game or a, the St. John's game at the road or the Georgetown game on the road when the shot, shots aren't falling? And instead of having your five go outside and shoot the three, have somebody down low who can get those rebounds and get you 12 points that you weren't counting on? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I'm just, I'm just saying you're going to have to find me someone who's better than Zach Freeman. Right. I know it's, that's that it's type hard. of player, and that's like how many guys are like that. Zach Freeman yep. is an uh, all-conference player. I mean, a lot of teams right. in the Big East would love to have him. So the issue is the fit around him, having the right guys, yep. having the right mentality. I also think fans uh, sometimes lose sight of the idea of guys improve over the course of their career. Sure, Sometimes absolutely. you get tougher as an upperclassman. And one thing I would say, looking at Xavier's team this year on the court, they didn't look like a Big East team to me in terms of physicality with strength. And I know uh, Matt Jennings has done a really good job with Xavier's strength program over the years. I mean, you look at some of the, the guys they've had that have been I – mean, they've dominated the glass, and they've been a very tough team in the past. So – I don't think that he's the problem, obviously, but I would think that maybe coming off a pandemic year, they really need to get back to focusing on getting these guys a little bit bigger and stronger for Big East play because your your point is not wrong. I, that, that was an issue for them, and Zach has to get much better defensively, much tougher. Uh, I think he's worried about playing without fouling, and he focused on that too much so he could stay on the offensive end. And, and that's not the only issue he had. He's bad defensively too, but I think there's also a lack of aggression at times because he's trying <laughs> to stay on the court. Yeah, and I, I wasn't trying to imply that I don't want Zach Fremantle on the court. And it's no, really I, just kind of, like you said, the roster construction is kind of they played it as they had to. Um, right, just, but I, I, just, I just think like the, the I get your point, but the issue is – if, if he's he's going to play the five more than likely, right? So you yeah. got to figure that out around him. I don't know that getting a Tyreek Jones is going to be the answer when you have Zach Fremantle because he's probably not going to play a lot of minutes. Sure. You know, and maybe that comes from Colby Jones as your three man and finding a really tough four man to go with it. And maybe that is the best route and the route they need. I think one big piece of the puzzle here that only Travis Steele and his staff can answer right now or know is what do you think you're getting out of Deontay Miles next year? I just don't have a good answer to that question. I didn't get to see practice this whole year because of the pandemic. I don't know where he's at. And they seem to think he's going to be a, a piece of their future going forward. And if he's ready to contribute, man, that really changes things because he's super mobile on the defensive end. He could guard fours for you if you needed to. He can protect the rim. Now, he doesn't rebound all that well. He's skinny. He's going to get pushed around in there. So that may be an issue. But he really could help, and you could – mix and match some lineups a little bit easier if he is going to live up to the potential of a high major big east level center on that on that note rick talking about uh slender kind of long athletic guys watching the tournament you see a team like florida state um that has a lot of those guys you see and you and i mean like we're we're talking about different talent levels but as a guy that watches a ton of college basketball games, in order for that to work, for like a the Baylor had a lot of those guys. Granted, a lot of them were in the backcourt, and Baylor played some small guys too in the frontcourt. Um, do you just have need to have five of those guys to be able to run with something like that, where you're just long and athletic all over the place, and you can kind of make up for those mistakes and get hands in the passing lane? And if you only have one of them, it kind of doesn't work, or Am I just completely seeing 
like a team like Florida State or Baylor or whatever. Uh, Florida wrong. State, I think you, you, that's who they are. Uh, that's the funny thing about Baylor is this is what we keep hearing, you know, because of that finals game against Gonzaga. As we hear about how tough and athletic this Baylor team was, and don't get me wrong, they're super athletic in the sense that they're fast and they've got great guards that can break you down and really score. But this is a team that ranked 274th in defensive rebounding percentage. They are not a big or tough team uh, in terms of rebounding. They are that is not their mo. They got beat up inside, and in fact, if you listen to any of the stuff I did going into the game, which my NCAA takes sucked all postseason, <laughs> so it's probably better if you didn't. But the one thing I thought was that Gonzaga was going to be able to get them inside. They don't defend the, the uh, two pointer that well. They are 130th in two point percentage on the defensive end. They're not like a, a team that was getting stops inside all year because of their toughness and rebounding at a high clip. Now, they were unbelievable against Gonzaga. It's also easier to be really good defensively and do all those things and be in position when you make every shot you take and you get to reset your defense every time. That that makes a big difference, too. So, yeah, I mean, in the if you're going the Baylor route, then you're going much more towards spread everybody out play small ball with a 6'5", four-man, which is what they have. Now, granted, he's 250 pounds. But when they take him off the floor, they play a, a slender 6'9", face-up dude who wants to, to get buckets on offense. So they are much more an offensive-minded team, a spread-you-out-and-play-small-ball type team. They did a good job of getting uh, a guy like uh, JTT inside, Flo Thamba, some big men who have toughness and uh, help protect the rim a little bit. Uh, but overall, that wasn't really – their mo they just played an unbelievable game in the finals against gonzaga absolutely and interestingly so did ucla in the semifinals so does does travis have that offense where you just make it'd be a good one to install uh, yeah it worked um (laughs) one game you know and i yeah i think baylor is a situation where you have a a perfect fit of players and, and guys that were really tough to guard and by the way, they're the best three-point shooting team in the country. Like, if you're going to play 2021 basketball and you want to gear your towards your team towards anything, I would gear it towards making the three-pointer at a high clip because that's the most efficient way to score, and it's how most teams are playing these days, and it's how kids want to play. So it's easy to recruit to as well. And you can also make up for some deficiencies in terms of your athleticism if you're able to shoot at a really high clip. So you don't have to have as talented of players in terms of their physical attributes. So that is what I would say about Baylor. They had a really good makeup for the way the game is played today. On the other side, UCLA, I think that was a perfect fit for the perfect coach situation. Mick is a ride his star into the ground type of guy, ride him all the way. And Johnny Juicing was the best player in the NCAA tournament this year. So follow up on your shooting comment, Rick. I know a lot of times, you know, you've said freshmen in college don't, you know, even if they're good shooters, they're not going to shoot the ball well. So with the the new transfer rule that we're expecting to go into place, do you anticipate that there's going to be across college basketball more of a focus on recruiting through the transfer portal and less importance on high school seniors going forward? Or is it is it the high school uh recruiting still going to be just as important to, to programs? Well, I mean, it's going to be important, but it's going to be way less important. And I do think you're going to see a huge shift. In fact, just in talking to coaches around the game, they're all saying the, the what you want now is a freshman transfer or a sophomore transfer, a guy with multiple years of eligibility that you can still develop and get to learn your system and have them for a few years and, and have an old experienced team at some point down the line. But a guy who's 
already used up the one-time free transfer rule, so he's not as much of a flight risk if you don't play him the, the minutes he wants right away. And also a guy who's already taken that first step into Division One basketball and been through a year of a strength and conditioning program and learned how important it is to play hard on defense and things of that nature. So, yeah, I, there's no doubt that's going to be a huge part of recruiting going forward is searching for those first and second year transfers especially. So with a, a Xavier flavor to this, um, you know, we had – Scruggs and Johnson come back. Do you have you heard anything around the guys like Kunkel and Stanley that um, you know, like Kunkel had or two years left, I guess. I guess is he planning to stay for two years after this, or is it gonna be, you know, a one and done for him and Stanley next year? Yeah, no, I definitely don't expect that. I think, you know, Stanley would have one year left, I believe, after he comes back. Um from his injury. And then with Kunkel, you've got two more years. I don't see him going anywhere. I mean, this is home for him. This is what he came back for and he's already, you know, transferred once. So I think both of those guys are, are in it for the long haul here and finishing up their careers here. I think the, the bigger question for, in terms of Xavier's roster is what happens with the two incoming freshmen, Cesar Edwards and Elijah Tucker, because you do have a, a couple guys in front of them already and it seems like they're recruiting for another forward spot. So, you know, if those guys don't get a lot of minutes this first year and that one-year transfer or one-time transfer rule goes into effect, then they obviously could be risks to leave right away. Right. Following up on that, and you, I mean, you kind of answered it in that, but uh, a listener question from Phil in Louisville do you see the incoming freshman having as big of an impact as the 2020 freshman did? Now, granted, there was a lot more opportunity for the likes of Colby and Dwan and to an extent, CJ Wilcher. But um, as you said, it seems like there's going to be a major battle for front court minutes. Those two guys coming in, I know Xavier fans are really high on and um, they're always high on incoming freshmen, but what's your, What's your kind of uh, take there, especially considering that at one point Elijah Tucker was thought of as being a redshirt? So, yeah, I think that's with both cases, it's, you know, especially with bigger players, Cesar is 6'10 and Elijah is more of like a 6'7 forward. I think Cesar ultimately is going to play the center position, even though they've told him, you know, he can start out as a forward because that's what he believes he is. He's a face up guy. And if you look at NBA, Long term, he's he's a more of a forward in that league. But um, at Xavier, I think he'll be a center for the most part. So uh, I think the the one thing the the coaching staff is going to look at with those guys is can you give us defense? And if you can, there is definitely a role for you in this front court for the backup minutes. But there's no way that those two guys, in my opinion, will be able to make the impact that this year's freshman class had because they needed a guy like Colby so much on both ends of the court. And even Dwan played a valuable role as the backup point guard when, when he was available. So I don't see them making as big of an impact this year, but long-term over the course of their career, I think they both have a lot of upside. And if they, if either one of them can defend right away, then I think that definitely raises their value for this year's team. So um, going back to Johnson and Scruggs for a second, um, from what I recall reading your message board this year, it seemed like you and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like of the guys who potentially could come back 
these two, at least at the beginning of the year, were considered to be sort of the most unlikely to yeah, do so. That's right. Um, so do you have any input? I'm just curious as to why they're coming back, right? Like it just, especially Scruggs. I mean, he's what, 23 or will be yeah. 23? Yeah, I think he already um, is, yeah. So just do you know kind of what their thought process was, why they decided to come back for another year? Because um, it just it does seem a little strange to me that I'm happy they're coming back, but, you know, they could have opportunities to make money. So what, what, what's the, what's the appeal? Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, it was fascinating to let you in kind of behind the scenes a little bit here of what we were doing all year with this is uh, we definitely, you know, everyone thought they were likely to leave. I mean, Paul Scruggs thought about going to the NBA or trying to go pro last year uh, before he decided to come back kind of late. So, we expected them to be gone most of the season got a little later, maybe early big East season, I'd say. And we heard something about, yeah, Paul saying he wants to come back. Nothing really about Nate at that point. Then midway to late in the big East season, it's like both of those guys say they're coming back and we didn't report anything about it because it's one thing to say you're coming back in the middle of the season when you're having fun and you're playing with your buddies. It's a totally different thing to say you're coming back after the season's over and you get away and you're done going to classes and you're back home with your family or whatever. So we still didn't think it was likely to happen until right before senior day when Paul literally didn't even want to walk and do the senior day stuff before senior day. And they all agreed to like, let's do it as a group and figure it all out afterwards. But at that point, Paul and Nate had already told the staff that they planned on coming back. They followed through on their word after the season and their postseason meetings um, and why they're doing it. I think in both cases, neither one is much of a surefire NBA guy. So they definitely sure. kind of on the grinding route and it's not all that fun to necessarily go overseas, but more than even that, I, I think fans will like hearing this, that kind of the whole corny enjoying the fans and playing in front of the fans. I think Paul didn't want a senior year to be a year where he played in front of a empty Centos center. You know, he has a special connection with these guys, and I think it, it meant Man. a lot to him to go out with all these guys uh, or all these fans cheering him on. And, and, and same with Nate. He never even got the opportunity to experience that at the Centos Center. So I think that's the biggest reason for both of them. And they they really had a great locker room this year. Those guys really enjoyed playing together. The chemistry was really high. You know, I know people thought late in the year, like, Steele lost the team or something because they didn't have success, but that really wasn't the case at all. These guys are bought in. They really like the coaching staff. Um, they, I thought they played hard for them. They just weren't good. They couldn't make shots. And I think that's, has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. I, that was going to be my follow-up was what you just touched on. Cause, um, I was going to ask about Steele a little bit there and obviously he needs or you know, the Xavier fan base and obviously they want to get to the tournament and win games, but it does seem like these guys do really enjoy playing for the staff that they have now. Um, and I think it can only be taken as a good sign that two fifth-year guys who, you know, might not be NBA prospects but could make money overseas for sure, you know, decide that, hey, they want to come back and give it another run and go to class again um, and help, you know, keep some of the younger players, maybe keep preaching to them about what, what goes on at, at Xavier in terms of basketball, right? So yeah. I, And maybe keep Travis still employed. 
But yeah, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll talk about that. <laughs> I think I think also that was a veiled shot at uh what's happening across town and Rick, your your boy, your former boy, I don't know, your uh Brandon. But also I love that Matt, who is our resident um yeah. COVID nineteen question asker guy. He kind of snuck in a question about COVID nineteen because they didn't. They came back because they wanted to be around fans. <laughs> so that was clever there. I got. I see what you yeah. did there. Um. So about oh, actually, kind of on that subject. Um, as far as CJ and Kiki leaving the program, I know that Kiki was very expected, and he's announcing tomorrow. I think. Um, he's coming back to Xavier, right? Expected. That's that's what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Is that? I mean, that's that's just flat out a minutes thing. And then the Kiki thing, like, um, as great as he was his freshman year, it's just a matter of a fit, right? I mean, like, my what I'm trying to what I'm trying to ask is just like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. This isn't, and I think I think as a fan base, especially on the message board, I've seen more positivity about transfers and people wishing the best to guys um, versus, and I know the, the, it's the loud minority, um, but on the message board, it's been pretty positive. So on top of the question about um, the locker room and, you know, the whole program, what the, that doesn't say well i think with cj wilcher the case was he was going to come back he really liked the guys he played with one thing i would point out is bringing adam kunkel into this program if for no other reason just because of how good of a locker room piece he was and how much of a connector among the guys and chemistry type piece he is uh he's he's been a huge plus in that department and guys really like playing with him and he's formed a great bond among the teammates so i i I, cj wilcher wanted to come back he likes the guys he plays with he likes the coaching staff for the most part, I think he felt Steele was kind of unfair with how he uh, didn't really give him much of a leash at all to make any type of mistakes. And I think that is a fair criticism, especially in some games where you saw Jason Carter really, really struggling. CJ Wilcher would come in, give them a lift on the offensive end, making a few shots, and then he'd mess up one time defensively and he'd be yanked out of the game and never be seen again. And I thought Steele was maybe a little too heavy handed on focusing on defense and guys he can quote unquote trust when those guys really weren't giving him all that much and specifically Carter at the four, obviously. So yeah, I think with Wilcher, it was a thing where he was ready to come back and he was fine with it until Nate Johnson said he was coming back. And then it was kind of like, okay, well you guys, I mean, that's the same backcourt I played with last year. You really don't see me as a wing right now. Then I'm going to be a backup forward again. If you're trying to get more forwards in the portal. So you know, he didn't think that was the best situation for him. And, you know, I, I, he's obviously transferring to the to Nebraska, which is, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you'd say it's a higher level than the Big East, but it's certainly a worse basketball program than Xavier's right now. So he went to a place where he's going to get a lot of opportunity and do what he thinks is best for him. Um, the other side, Kiki, a different story. I think it, it just, you know, he, he really didn't buy in to the things the coaching staff wanted to buy into this year. And I'm really surprised so many fans clamored for him to get more minutes because I thought he was 
quite honestly awful in the minutes he played on the court this year. I, I don't really understand how anyone thinks he was playable, especially with the other options that Xavier had this season. I, I understand he gave them a lift at sometimes uh, late in his freshman season. It was a totally different circumstance, and they didn't have any other options in terms of three-point shooters. So with Kiki, I think they, he never bought in, and the staff really kind of gave up on him to a certain extent. I think that's well within Travis Steele's rights as the coach, and it, it may be even a good decision if you are trying to build a culture and set a standard that you need to do certain things and play a certain way to get minutes. But I think uh, you guys still got – oh, sorry. I thought my computer turned off there for a second. Um, but I think it's also a situation where, as a fan base, you're going to look at that and say, it, you're recruiting the wrong guys, best-case scenario then. If a guy is going to be uh, thought of as a big – piece of your future and uh, uh, a lot of your perimeter fire firepower of the next couple of years. And then he's transferring out after two seasons, you're recruiting the wrong guy, best case scenario. And that's something, you know, Travis has got to, to figure out because coming into last season, I would have told you Kiki was going to be a really important part of not only that team, but the next two teams. So, you know, they've, they've helped replace that already by getting Adam Kunkel and bringing him in. But even still it, it isn't the best thing when you're turning over like that and, and not getting production from guys that you expect to be important pieces of your future. I guess my, my... But did Kiki or, or CJ consider the obvious fact that Kunkel was only here for a year? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Transfer if, to UC. I don't know if they know, Shout out you to know, the I don't know if they that know one. that that's the plan. If Adams <laughs> told him that because he's been such a good teammate. <laughs> I guess my question is doesn't this happen though at every program like for the most part I mean players that you expect are going to contribute transfer right isn't that just the nature of yeah for sure I think this is I think the one with Kiki was partly what he did towards the end of his freshman year that had people thinking okay well he's going to be a piece and he has some potential and he certainly does but uh to your point, yeah, I just don't think he got better in any other area. He didn't seem to want to commit himself to getting better on the defensive end and at being a better teammate on the offensive end and fitting in with the system. And Travis Steele didn't seem to think it was worth it to throw him out there and let him do his thing otherwise. And that's fair on both sides. Um, but I, I understand why people are saying, well, how many guys are you going to get wrong in terms of the recruiting thing? And that's a fair question too. So I guess, I mean – the Kunkel thing is interesting to me with Kiki this year, maybe because um, they weren't expecting him to play. Right. right. Um, that yeah. was, that was the understanding. So, and that's really when he I started was, losing his minutes big time too, is when right. Kunkel became eligible. Yeah. And, you know, I'm watching them play. I mean, I would rather have Kunkel on the floor given what they've showed this year. Um, but I guess that's my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my thing would be this. If Adam Kunkel is a better defender than Kiki Tandy, that's inexcusable on Kiki Tandy's part. You know, like sure. Adam doesn't have any physical. I mean, he does, he, but he's not. He's not super laterally quick. Kiki is a freak athletically, and he offers yeah. them nothing. He's totally lost on that end. Yeah. And he and Adam makes all the right decisions on the offensive end, and that's. Like when you talk about a microwave of Kiki coming off the bench and scoring eight points in two minutes, yes, it's possible, but he could also well, go over. And he seemed to be an automatic turnover almost every time uh, the first touch. On the first touch, it seemed like yeah. he was turning over every time this year. Right. So I've got a question on Steele. I think um, 
you know, he's been here three years. I think there's been a couple things that have been proven that he's very good at. He's a very good recruiter. It sounds like he can uh, maintain a good locker room. I think he's shown the ability, like his, his out of bounds or out of timeout plays. He obviously can coach offense. I guess my question is the one area as a, as a fan without being, you know, in the game and in the locker room and all that, that I felt like he struggled with this year is just making in-game adjustments. And when like the other team would go on a run or Xavier would, um, you know, be kind of hitting a snag, it was like, there were a number of games where they just couldn't get out of their own way. So I, I, I mean, I, my opinion is he just needs more time. He'll grow into being a better in-game coach. Um, but I think you you talked about this with the defense versus offensive thing. There were a couple games it was so frustrating. They keep going to the Jason Carter lineup, and it's like, well, I understand if you put somebody else out there, maybe you're going to give up more points, but you're probably going to score more points. So do you think that based on what he's learned this year and really the last couple of years with kind of their – defense first lineups that we will see steel transition into more of the approach that maybe he and Mac had at the end of Mac's tenure, where they're going to put their best offensive line about there and, and, you know, be damned if the other team can outscore them. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that he was the lead recruiter on Trayvon Blewett and he was the guy that was fine with playing Trayvon at the four. I like had that in mind, you know, he's the one that was largely responsible for designing that offense. So that's, I think his ideal style of basketball, but he has to get those pieces that he feels he can trust to play that way. I would have argued last year, as it sounds like you kind of would too. He was too stubborn with worrying about the defensive end and the toughness and guys that he trusted. Um, I, I think everything's a learning experience. Everybody, from a fan's perspective forgets that players improve, but coaches improve too, as time goes on Uh, people that want to fire coaches after two or three years, I think are really uh, trending towards a slippery slope. If the, the administration were to follow through on your wishes, you know, that would not be a good situation for your program. If you were being that impatient to be quite honest and look around the country. I mean, there's plenty of examples of guys who need a little bit of time, settled in, figured it out and they continue to get better. Uh, my preference when it comes to coaching styles is I like a guy that is willing to coach to his team's strengths. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have an identity. And a lot of coaches will stick with a certain defense and not change from game to game and matchup to matchup the way fans want them to because they want to have answers for their kids. It's really hard to be good at anything if you're switching defenses every time and you don't have uh, a guaranteed answer for the way you defend every action. Right, that's the way, the reason Xavier sticks to their uh, pack line defense and the way they defend ball screens so much because they have all the answers. No matter what a team throws at them, they know how to tell their kids to react and they can adjust to it. So I would argue that that's fine, but look at this year's tournament. Look at a team like Oregon State. Look at what Syracuse does every year because their base defense is a changeup in itself. You've got to have that off-speed pitch. It's fine if you have your your system and what you want to do and you want to be disciplined within that and be really good at it. But I also think if you look at Chris Mack's best coaching jobs, it was when he went to that 1-3-1 defense and found a way to keep Matt Stainbrook on the court and was willing to go to something that he didn't necessarily believe in as much, but it worked because of the personnel he had on his team that year. To me, that's the best coaches. They are able to do that. 
Right. And I just, one more comment on that. I think kind of our heartburn with Fremantle and I understand he's a sophomore and yeah, he, he I mean, he's going to be a great player the next two years. But if you look at those teams in 2016 through 18, that were really good, they had kind of the skill players on the perimeter, but then they had this big dude in the middle, whether it be Reynolds or far or even Stainbrook that you could throw the ball into, you could get a bucket, but they also could rebound. And I think our heartburn going forward is, can Fremantle develop into that guy? I, I think so, but... I think Fremantle is, can rebound just fine. The issue on his end is defense right now, and he's not the biggest guy, you know, so you don't have some of the same physicality, length, size, stuff like that that some of the other teams in the Big East do, so it makes you feel overall smaller. But my point to, to not just you, but fans in general would be, I wouldn't focus so much on one example, you know, like, oh, this year's Baylor team won it all, so you got to find them. Or that one Xavier team or even several Xavier teams were really good when they had this type of big man. The issue is not that one position. The issue is getting all the pieces to fit together. You can win with Zach Fremantle. Zach Fremantle isn't the problem. The problem right. is finding the other guys to go with him that are talented enough and make up for his his struggles. And And to be quite honest with you, he's going to get better defensively. Now, he may never be good defensively, but this year was a disaster on the defensive end for him. He'll get better than that. I um, I think you pointed out very adeptly that um, one of the big issues with Zach on defense was trying to stay out of foul trouble because very early in the year, there were in those few non-conference games that they played, Zach had some foul trouble against what you would call lesser teams. And he had to sit a lot of minutes in a few games and those games ended up being close. Um, but I got into a, I got into a tiff on the message board with, with some guy. I, he, I guess he's the, the, the local fact. Oh, we've got a few of them. The uh, Musketeer report message board. <laughs> uh, because I said, <laughs> I, I, and I did make an erroneous statement about Fremantle and minutes. I overstated his minutes, but the fact is, Tyree Jones led the Big East in rebounding at like 28 minutes a game his senior season. And Zach Fremantle played 32 minutes a game this year. And if you take out a couple of those games where he had foul trouble, it would have been higher. Um, and I'm sure Tyreek had similar situations. But um, I think that four minutes a game for a guy of Zach Fremantle's caliber – of rebounder and of his height is going to probably get him a rebound or a rebound and a half per game. Um, but point being that I think he definitely shied away from contact on the defensive end, as you stated, Rick. Well, um, well and I, I also, I, I also think one thing that, that Fremantle it was, has to do as mature in terms of how he approaches the game mentally. You know, it's, it's one thing to try not to foul. It's another thing to just start being lazy and not getting back in transition or th some of the things like that. And I understand if you're Travis Steele, you're going to play Zach Fremantle for the most part, he's playing hard and maybe playing a few too many minutes per game. But I think that's a, another thing where it's like, if you're going to hold Kiki Tandy as accountable as they did, and you're going to hold CJ Wilcher as accountable as you do, you maybe need to be a little tougher on Zach at times too, you know, because there's, there's times, especially I go back to that St. John's game where 
they're blitzing Xavier on the other end of the court. And Zach's like taking a play off on getting back in transition. And that's the reason they're getting scored on. So he has to grow up in terms of his mental approach and realize that he has to give it everything on every possession, even if he's shying away from contact when it comes to contesting a shot or what have you. Absolutely. And I know we're not going to get into um, starters and all that for next year, but I do want to ask you, in your opinion, minutes for Colby and Dwan next year. I'm assuming they're both 25. Yeah, the problem with the minutes thing is I'm not good enough at math. Uh, Like, you know, I'll start spitting it out, and then it'll be like, that's 735 minutes, and that's (laughs) not going to happen. Um, But I I would just say a lot. I mean, I think both of those guys are starters. Now, obviously, you have – Paul Scruggs and you have Nate Johnson coming back. I was told that Dwan Odom was talked to and it was cleared with him that, Hey, you good with Paul Scruggs coming back. You're not going to be leaving on us or anything. And he was fine with that. So I think he understands there's going to be at least some competition for minutes there. And it's not just going to be handed to him, but those two guys are going to play starter like minutes. If they're not both in that starting lineup, because the staff, Fuse them as the future now too. You know they're they're a huge part of that, and you can't take the chance on those guys leaving after this year because you had Nate and Paul come back. Well, and 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 offensively and defensively, like Dwan's ability to get into the lane, um, and Colby's ability to do everything. No doubt. Like defensively, I think those are two of your best options. I know Nate Johnson's a great perimeter defender, but I think we were all just impressed. I mean. Dwan Odom had like two game saving blocks, um, which is incredibly impressive. And then you may I was gonna say before is where his he, game well he found Brown, somebody at the end of a game yeah, he, that was silly. He's very good. Right. Um mm-hmm. but guys, you want on the floor defensively. And, and yeah, that's the I mean they're good. That's the so, other part. They're good uh, enough to get those minutes. Like that they they're deserving of those minutes. And <laughs> uh you gotta be careful about bringing the transfers in and the super seniors back and stuff like that this year, because you don't want to lose guys like that who are very deserving and are, are going to be good enough to be a part of your future. Yeah, I got, I got one last question uh, for you, Rick, and it's Matt, just got- kind of like a broad view of Xavier basketball. Um, something I'm interested in is just, um, what is the, what, in your opinion, what is the realistic expectation for a Xavier basketball team on a year in year out basis? I mean, in the big, I mean, to me, we're getting into it. All right. No, I mean, this, like, (laughs) I'll give you mine. Like mine, I think the two years that they got a one and a two seed, obviously are anomaly type years with the talent that they had. And to me, it seems like where they are in the landscape of college basketball, it's a, middle of the road, big East team, which they have been. And when they have the right talent, they can compete to win the big East title and get a protected or, a, you know, the old term or whatever from the NCAA tournament, a protected seed in the NCAA tournament. But realistically, they're going to be most years, seven to 11 battle in the bubble in some years. And then, you know, maybe missing it once every five years, just because maybe they had an off year, but I'm just curious as to what your, your thoughts are on that from an insider, but kind of an outside and not a fan necessarily point of view. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. It's something that's being discussed and everyone's setting their own standard for this program this offseason. And a lot of people are obviously not happy with the way things are going. One thing I would point out to you guys before I even get into the standard is in a lot of ways for fans and what they expect out of this program, the move to the Big East was a worse move. Yeah. It's much better from <laughs> your status overall and what type of recruits you're going to get and your, your visibility and, uh, you know, in terms of just entertainment and playing good competitive basketball. But if you if your goal is to get the best seed possible and be, you know, they have more upside as a seed now. They can get a one seed as they've proven, which that wasn't the case when then they were in the A-10. But it's going to be much more difficult to live in that, like, four to six range and be chasing those consistently and have those flawless resumes. They're in a position where, you know, they spend about mid-level in the Big East, a little, probably a little bit lower than that in terms of coach compensation right now because you have Steele. Um, but I think that's kind of their goal is to be like a, a middle-of-the-pack Big East team in terms of their spending and then overachieve from there. It's easy to forget that they're still one of the top teams in overall Big East wins since they've joined the new conference, even despite their struggles recently. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they're most years going to be somewhere on the bubble because the Big East is just super competitive. Now, you can be on the bubble going in the final weeks of the Big East season then reel off five wins and all of a sudden be a six or seven seed. So right. it's different in that regard too. Everything changes. Um, the stakes go up for each game in the Big East, but it makes it more difficult to win consistently. And I'll be quite honest. I mean, like Xavier doesn't recruit as good as other Big East schools at the top. And a lot of games last year, I don't know what you guys thought, but I didn't feel like Xavier had the most talented player or most talented two players on the court in a lot of those Big East games. So, you know, they're they're behind some teams, and that it's going to be cyclical while they're in the Big East in terms of when they have those teams that can make a run and, and be capable of challenging for a Big East title. But overall, I think everyone expects Xavier to be a team that is in the NCAA tournament consistently. That doesn't mean every year. But it means, you know, there, certainly you don't want to have three years where you miss it like you're in right now. I think there's going to be some some uh, leniency given for the fact that you're in a coaching change and some of what happened with Chris Mack's final recruiting class and now a pandemic. You got to there are some realities there that a lot of people will call excuses, but they are just real things that make it difficult. Um, but I, th- I think going forward, I think that's kind of the expectation is be there consistently, but not every year and uh, and compete at least at the mid-level of the Big East, if not higher. Yeah, I, the reason I – and I was thinking about this and I brought it up to the guys last week is I was thinking about Gonzaga and not to say that Xavier is comparable to them, but I think they are in terms of just size of school and basketball only. But it seemed like they were on the same trajectory when, you know, Xavier is in the A-10 or a similar trajectory, right? And you brought up a good point, I think, about transferring to the Big East, whereas Gonzaga's just kind of stayed consistent in the WCC, and they know that they're going to get – I mean, they're going to lose one or two games every year and get a high seed just because of brand name, right? And um, that was the reason for asking that, because I think – I, at least my opinion is I think a lot of fans see the success that Gonzaga's had, and – I mean, I'm jealous of it for sure, but it's just not really – and they get better players at this point too. But um, like I said, it just seems like they were on a similar trajectory for so long and then 
Xavier's kind of plateaued when they transition to the Big East, and I think that has to be kind of expected. Yeah. Um, I, I don't well, know the that other... Xavier, I don't know that Xavier could achieve what Gonzaga has now that they're in the Big East. I think that would be really hard for them to do. I think the other thing that we that we've talked about, um, not only to change the Big East, but I mean Gonzaga's had the same coach for twenty years, and Xavier's lost arguably, uh, you know, three really really good coaches the last twenty years in Mata, Miller, and Mac. Um, so each time that that has happened, there's been some level of upheaval that the program has had to overcome, and, and Gonzaga has not had to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, yep. no doubt. And I, you know, what's uh, funny about that is for Xavier fans who are getting restless with Travis Steele as their head coach, the funny thing about that whole deal is if you have any faith in the guy at all that he can figure it out long term, Travis Steele's your best shot of having a Mark View. Travis Steele's your best shot of having a Jay Wright. Like, that's the one guy you have that you might be able to convince to stick around especially if you show him a little loyalty early in his career right now. I mean, I'm sure well, everyone's pretty say, aware of his family situation. And, and yeah, yeah, right. Hopefully. Yeah. We, we, that, we discussed that like ad nauseum when Chris yeah. left. His I mean, I think that's how we all feel now, but if you listened to yes. our podcast after the Xavier Butler Big East game, you might think differently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I get the frustration. I mean, look, I, I think um, everyone understands that that's not how it's supposed to go and that's not going to be okay, but it is what it is at this point. You know, I mean, you, you've got the team you have going next year. You should be certainly a top half of the Big East team at worst next year. And uh, I don't think there are going to be a lot of excuses for next season. So the people that want their, um, want the payoff here with the Travis Steele years, you'll, You'll get to see it next year. I think if if you don't make the tournament next year, you're really – I don't think you'll ever get the fan base back in a lot of ways. Perfect, perfect segue. You're such a pro, Rick. Uh, as you did on the Skinny Podcast, we have a shoot it, sip it, toss it for you. On March 1st, 2022 – Xavier is A, comfortably in the NCAA tournament, B, bubblicious yet again, or C, needs to win the Big East tournament to get in. Shoot it. You love it. Sip it. Eh. Uh, toss it. B. Get it, it out of here. They'll be, they'll be on the bubble again, think? but I think they'll make the tournament. Okay, so Bubblicious is the shoot it, and then oh I'm yeah, I, I would I would toss the uh, um that they're yeah out of it. they won't be they won't be out of it to- uh, toss the out of it thing uh, they could be maybe on the wrong side of the bubble if things don't go right and obviously you know can't predict injuries and things of that nature but assuming things go somewhat normal for them sure uh, I, yeah I think they'll be on the bubble on the right side of the bubble and make it. And they certainly have the upside to be a team that could uh, be at the top of the Big East. I mean, I don't know, looking at rosters today as we sit here on April 7th, how many teams are you putting ahead of them right now? One, two, maybe three? Right. 
Absolutely. So if you have yeah, a couple let them more rock. minutes, we, I have a couple questions for you that are just more fun. All right. Um, do you think that this offseason, or well, anytime between February and March, that Greg Christopher texts John Beeline, even just to say, <laughs> what's up, JB? Like, just, hey, what you doing? Like, you know. Like, None. But or there None. no text exchanges. <laughs> We just talked about this. Guy. Is there a, is there a personal, re- more of a personal relationship? Like, do they like text each uh, other that... horse betting tips or something that I'm unaware of? Because otherwise, I no none. <laughs> uh, well, as as Matt mentioned that, uh, or Brian mentioned after the Big East tournament loss to Butler, there may have been some hot takes on this podcast. Yeah, I wouldn't that, recommend uh, doing that, that going forward, or at least Beeler's not getting your name. hopes up about it going uh, forward. <laughs> um all right this one because i mean people want to know the people want to know and i completely understand if you can't tell us but any inside info on brian snow's next move and the reason that we want to know is because if he joins the staff at xavier then that potentially makes it possible for him to be on this podcast to talk about the Bengals and the Reds and Xavier. Really, this is all about sports intoxication, this question. Like, can we, do we, do we potentially no, have a I can confirm that he will not Xavier be at Xavier. Staffer? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, maybe we got to start covering somebody else. Uh, and then, are you still all in on FC first half unders? I think they've made some moves this year. I don't know what they mean, but I, should we start betting? I don't know. It was so good happens. to me last year. As far as I FC feel like maybe I years. owe it to them to do that. Although maybe it's disrespectful to continue that after they were so good to me last year, and I should just be happy with uh, what they gave me and not get too greedy. I haven't really developed a plan. I don't really know when their season starts, if we're being honest. Um it, but when it comes around, I'm willing to listen to strategy here. I, I think my play would probably be see if they start like the Reds and are scoring like five goals a game over the first few weeks. And if that's the case, then maybe not do it. Uh, but yeah, if like if they go one zero that first game, you better believe I'm back on the train. <laughs> Love it. Uh, uh, what and that brought up. Another question. Man, that's a good uh, question. Uh, We're we're going to talk about this a lot tomorrow on the skinny pot, or probably not the who you want more question. That we've got plenty of time for that, and it's getting a little bit played out, I guess. But we will be discussing the draft, and I've obviously been thinking a lot about that whole situation. And I think I'm on Panay Sewell strictly because I couldn't get over how bad the Bengals' offensive line was last year, and. While I can be talked into the the basically one move, one important move that they made in, in free agency and signing Reef and moving a few guys around that you have a good enough offensive line that you can do something patchwork this year and, and be passable. But I don't think that's what I want. I think I just want to make the offensive line as good and dominant as it can possibly be. That being said, Jamar Chase was already a very enticing prospect. 
Joe Burrow having the relationship with him and wanting him makes it even more intriguing. And then you have his pro day where every physical number was off the charts and better than expected. I have no issue if that's the guy they decide they want to go with and they want to go all in on giving Joe Burrow as many weapons as possible. I can see either argument. I, I'm not too polarized either way, but I think I would go Panay Sewell if it was my choice. I think the point is that you got the the answer correct as far as they both have merit. Uh, and I'm not going to be mad either way. I think as a podcast, we're all kind of in agreement to an extent with that, that there's, there, there's not really a bad choice there. And then lastly, because we have another segment coming up uh, after we get off with you, we're rage, we're wagering on the no, master. No, do you, do you a, guys a have a pick you, you want to share with me? Because I don't know a damn or, thing about golf, you know. but I'd love to have some action on it. I'm going to ask Skinny the same thing tomorrow. So, I mean, you'll you'd hear three different things, but uh, yeah, I'll, I like I'm, JT's I'm at James plus nine twenty five to win. Guys, I like so JT at plus nine twenty five. That's the great thing about golf odds. Is no matter who you're taking, it's like great odds. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Uh, JT Cantley, yeah, there's a couple good ones. What? 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 Uh, I I did see Cantley's odds. Thousand. What? What are? Uh, Plus a thousand. So. John Rom's not going to do value it. Buy. If you if you I, don't think John Rom's a head kick, I got but. one more for Rick, real quick. Rick. Can we? Can <laughs> we'll we get just, into that. You know, I know we talked a lot about right, Xavier, but I think we'd be a little bit remiss for the few UC fans that listen to this. What the heck's going on over there in Clifton? Uh, I mean, what 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 version do you want? I mean, we, we want to start from the I top. Want, I don't want the. I want I want your your version. <laughs> what, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I've read some of it, but yeah, I, I my my take on the situation is it was a perfect storm. You had uh, a coach and John Brannon who probably wasn't connecting as well as he should have to some of his players. That's his personality. He's kind of like Chris Mack in that regard. That he's there to coach you and be hard on you. And then your time's your time. Go do your thing, and he's going to go back to work and doing film. And I don't think he had great assistants who were kind of the go-betweens. Like Chris Mack had a Travis Steele on his staff who was great at chemistry, keeping guys connected, gaining trust, all that type of stuff. I don't know that John has that on his staff. Then add in a pandemic. So you're not making good connections. Guys are going into practice, getting pissed off at you. And then instead of going out and doing a normal things a college student would do and blowing off steam, they go into their dorm and they stew on it for a while. So they come back to practice the next day even more pissed off at you. And add into that, I think he had some of the wrong guys. Some of them didn't have the right mentality to begin with for Division One athletics, in my opinion. And others have crazy parents. And most parents in this day and age, if their kid is that good, are fairly crazy. But these ones were really crazy and wanted to be really involved. And again, you factor the kids going back to their dorm rooms, stewing on this calling their parents from what I understand, a couple of them were roomed together with the craziest parents and were doing voicemail or I mean, uh, uh, speaker phone conference calls with the parents and the kids in the dorm room and complaining about the coach and devising plans. So it's a disaster. I think it was all a, a big 
uh, perfect storm type scenario. And then also you factor in the new transfer rules, the extra year of eligibility, all of that stuff that's making the transfer portal what it is. And, you know, when it first seemed like all these guys were leaving, it was the craziest thing in the world. Now you look back and you're kind of like, well, certainly not good. You're losing your entire freshman class, but the sheer number of it isn't really that shocking at this point in college basketball to have that many guys transferring. So that's what I see. That's what I think is happening for the most part. I'm not saying there weren't wrongdoings by the staff. Maybe more will come out, but for the most part, I think this is a perfect storm scenario. And then you've got a clown show of an AD right now doing clown show (laughs) things. I have no idea what this guy is thinking and the way (laughs) this is being drawn out. I understand there's a certain legal process once you decide to go this route, but that's why if you're a big-time institution, you don't go this route unless you absolutely have to. Uh, I don't see how this works out well for John Cunningham. Hope Maybe he'll keep his job. Obviously, John Brandon will not be back at UC. That's that's a long-gone situation at this point. It's just a matter of how much they're going to pay him to go away, and I certainly don't think they're getting off the hook for free. So kind of a follow-up to that. Um, I'm a UC alum, and I guess my question—you guys weird. You seem on smarter on, than that. Well, <laughs> Xavier didn't have. I'm I'm an engineer, and Xavier didn't have engineering. So I. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, my question is: You guys touched on this on the Skinny Podcast um, last week with Brendel, but like, is Cunningham not only ruining the basketball program, but taking the first steps to ruining the football program too by? essentially running, you know, not running Fickle out of town, but giving Fickle second thoughts about his desire to to stay in town for and only leave for a couple jobs. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's a situation where they're, like, pushing him out because of this. If anything, I think to a certain extent, he, they're, they're going to understand that, like, football means everything, and maybe this is why, you know, we have some of these issues on the basketball side. Um, that being said... There's no way if you are Luke Fickle that you're not watching, paying close attention to this and thinking this AD is a little bit bizarre. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I trust this guy fully. Um, I go back to when Luke Fickle first got the job. He was praised for his brutal practices out in the snow and like sub-zero temps and stuff when he first got there and he was doing all this crazy stuff and it was like the greatest thing ever that this coach was such a hard ass and an old school guy. And now it's like, you know, you see people are ready to torch John Brandon for having tough practices. I, not a lot of this is adding up, and I'm sure Luke Fickle is looking at it from that perspective too. He seems like a fairly normal, smart guy. I imagine he's thinking what a lot of us are thinking. And even if he understands he's more important and they're going to do everything they can to keep him, I think he's definitely going to think, I don't know if I trust this guy. Right. And more than that, I think the other thing it's it's doing is really – it's a bad PR statement for a program that has been claiming they're trying to get power five status and move into the big 12 or one of those types of conferences. I mean, you think the ADs and the presidents of those universities are looking at UC like, Oh yeah, we need a, a, a program that can't afford to pay their coach that they're firing. So they go the nuclear route and make an absolute shit show of a situation out of everything. I, I highly doubt it. Oh, my, my, my last, last question is what kind of odds would I have had to give you 10 years ago? So 
Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I know what the question's <laughs> going to be, but go ahead. That Mick Cronin makes the Final Four before Sean Miller. <laughs> he knows where you're going. Chris Mack. <laughs> I mean, really anybody, but let's just. Yeah, really anybody. I, yeah, I mean, the, the Sean Miller thing doesn't do a lot for me. I'm not as big on him as most Xavier people are. I don't think he's the greatest coach in the world. Um, right, let's just say Chris Mack then. That's fine. Yeah, I think Sean Miller got players, and there's a reason he got players. And uh, okay. some of his shortcomings <laughs> in the NCAA tournament were his own doings. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, you would have had to give me astronomical odds. I don't think I would have taken it just on principle. That being said, I think some people do not realize that I have never really said Mick Cronin is a bad coach. I've never really been that hard on him as a a coach in terms of his ability. I've made fun of what an idiot he is and, and how embarrassing he is to represent your university as the most public facing member of it. aside from maybe Luke fickle at this point at UC, but like when he was the most important person on UC's campus, he was constantly acting like a jackass in the media. And that's what I've always made fun of him for. And of course, I hate his drunk, dumb brother. <laughs> Hold on. Isn't it crazy, though, that there was a stretch where he wasn't he also the most obnoxious coach on campus when Tuberville was there? Yeah, well, or, I mean, honestly, when Butch Jones was there. How about that guy? True. Yeah, Butch Jones his, was a clown. His taglines and stuff, represent the C and then represent the T. I mean, <laughs> that's the worst thing I've ever heard. oh well this was this was awesome rick um we thank you a ton for for your time and your generosity and (laughs) our listeners absolutely you validate our podcast by coming on here and giving us all this knowledge and um and we we'll love we'd love to have you back in a in a month or two, and we can talk about Bengals and Reds because I know that you're yeah maybe well later in the year we'll be able to uh, talk about the Bengals' right upcoming season and the upcoming playoff for the Reds, and we'll be talking about Panay Soul or you know who who knows maybe Skinny has a, a devised a plan where they'll be able to get uh, Soul and yeah. Chase uh, by trading away next year's first round pick. So I'm uh, interested to hear what he has to say about that tomorrow. When I heard I talk this to on him. the radio today. <laughs> He's a wild dude. I, I I heard that on Mo's show today, and I, I, I yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great idea. And yeah, have oh, join he's us drinking out. something. If he, he can do if that, he's coming up with ideas yeah, he like that, that. He's drinking beer. So we're that's what we're all about on this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, again, we uh, we really appreciate it. And, yeah. Uh, we Thanks look for forward it. to. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really again. appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon. And. Thanks, Rick. All right. Thanks, Rick. Thanks again to Rick Broering. He's a he's been a very gracious guest of the podcast. He's actually, and I meant to tell him this before he left the podcast. Um he's actually our leader in the clubhouse. For now, guest appearances on Sports Intoxication with three, Paul Daner Jr. Now, that's quick a question: out. You got to come back on soon because you're. Yeah, two. we're we're still waiting. But and then, um, has well, he everybody surpassed else uh, Jimmy up. Connors for? Okay. <laughs> uh no. But I I mean. 
<laughs> he was he's, a member. He was a, he was a yeah. contributing member. Well, that, he was. He's a got player. the shirt to prove it, doesn't at, he? At one point, uh, contributing, but uh, and he does. And I, uh, I always tag him on our posts. Yeah, because uh, that gets new followers. Well, I mean, <laughs> it reaches people that I don't have reach to, so uh, so I can't completely. Uh... He's got a lot of reach, that's for sure. Because I, I'm all about, I'm all about the reach <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and speaking of reach, well, well, we're not going to talk about that. But uh, Panay Sewell and um, what, what's everybody drinking tonight? We got the old speaking Forster, of reach, what uh, did Statesman. you reach for? A, uh, in your victory glass bourbon of mine from one of these bets that we're we've had. So it's good. You're, you're, you're welcome for completely uh, screwing up the Super Bowl pick, Matt. I didn't screw anything. I didn't screw anything up. No, no, no. I did. Yeah, that's, that's all on you guys. Uh, I literally just had to left, pick a couple you things. Left that were you left the door yeah. jar, and I we... kicked it in. You absolutely did. Um, and uh, now, Matt, do you uh, like it? Or... I mean, it's good. Just the freeness of it. The three bottle of bourbon, crazy. right? That's not going to be too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got. Um, I'm drinking Elijah Craig small batch right answer. now. This is also Chase. my winnings from, I believe, the Masters actually. Yeah. So let's see if we can uh, repeat here, boys. I mean, well, socks. I hate to break it to I'm, you, but I'm you're a loser on this podcast. I had to pay for. Uh, what's this? I mean, I'm a complete loser on this podcast. I my whole thing on this podcast was trying to come in the middle, and but then we changed that, which was smart. Uh, because there needs to be repercussions for losing, and I'm that loser. I'm drinking 1792 sweet wheat, but Ooh. I started the podcast off with Thomas H. Handy Sazerac the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection because Rick Broering was coming on. And so with a heavy hitter, I needed a heavy hitter. I needed to uh, drink the good stuff for our guy, Rick, uh, who, as I said, has been so good to the podcast and um, also would not appear on <laughs> other podcasts if people just formed him and, you know, shots started fired. the podcast. I don't know what. Who that refers to, but I'm just saying it wouldn't happen. Those clowns, uh, man. <laughs> so, uh, it's like they don't. It's like they don't think also, there's a lot of hard work yeah, that goes into this. Um, I mean, two of the th- two of the three are loyal. WTF, the other uh, one certainly is not loyal. <laughs> right. His attention span is too short. Yeah. Jesus. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> He's been in bed for an hour and a half already, not like five. And I'll never do this. Um, so, <laughs> the uh, the WTF moment of the week. We're we're not ending yet, but we're just kind of giving you a little bit of a uh, interlude. To uh, I got one before so, we get into some more good. My dog. So uh, uh, since we've had the kids, Brian is WTF. like. He's got massive anxiety, so he's on Prozac. And took him to the vet in January, upped his Prozac from 20 milligrams to 30 milligrams for a trial period. 
Anyway, we ran out of the extra. You can't get a 30 milligram pill. So we ran out of the 10 milligrams. So he's back to 20. And then inevitably every month we have to refill his prescription. So this month that things got out of control and we missed getting the refill. So we went two days without getting it. Come downstairs in the basement. And literally my basement, you walk down the stairs, you can turn left and go to an open room. You can turn right, go to like the TV in the bar. And I'm not kidding you. There were, I think there were uh, 10 turds on each side of the building. What the fuck? I guess that's what happens when you don't get medicated. Yeah. 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 Mine, Pulled I, um, by the row. so over the weekend, I was at Meyer picking something up. It was Saturday, like eight, seven thirty at night, you know, whatever. Been hanging out. And went to Meyer, picked up some fruit dip for Easter Sunday, and I pulled into the spot, so I'm I'm able to pull out, right, and uh, run in, grab the fruit dip, get in my car, throw the fruit fruit dip in, and I'm getting ready to pull out and go to the right, not even paying attention, you know, done it a thousand times, and didn't even register to me i think i was talking on the phone or something um and sideswiped the car to my to my right and there's a dent in my side door and um i pulled a little bit of the bumper like the rubber bumper off of the car to my right you know what i'm talking about and there's a little scratch on the car and so we both go to the mechanic on monday and ten thousand dollars in damn and apparently it's more than i think but you know it's just like what are we doing and granted you know that's what well that's me it's my fault oh well it's five thousand each car oh my god to whose car This sounds like these numbers are I mean, actually. I'll I'll tell you right now. These sound like these numbers are inflated by lack of people driving on the roads. It's just you know whatever. Like I can't do anything about it now. Obviously, and up I've done. I've and pulled out of a parking spot a thousand times, you know, without doing it. And you know, one of the times that you're not paying enough attention. Although I only have a five hundred dollar deductible, so it'll be fine. But it's still just like what the fuck. Yeah. Yeah, but I was not. You know, it was nobody was in the car, Uh, and yeah, absolutely. You know, I waited around for twenty minutes to see if she would come out. She didn't come out, so left a note, name, number. Hey, this is me. Some good Samaritan. Yeah, you weren't. You weren't that asshole that just hit and runs because there are people that do that. Thought about it, but I didn't. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't have a, a very good WTF. Um, so I'm just going to say WTF Reds for the. I'm never allowed to get another game until they lose. Blunder. I don't think I can. And then. I'm one to know. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I was there today. 
And then that well, that's like a half a win though, because the oh, pirates okay. are not good. So what? I mean, oh, nice. <laughs> well, they all count for one, actually, according to the standings. WTF first uh, first inning. So yeah, I'll say WTF opening day and then WTF. Yeah. What the heck's going on right now? Because what the fuck's <laughs> going on right now? No. Suarez just needed right. two more games in spring yeah, training at shortstop. So really, it's WTF David Bell. And this is where we could really use Casey's input, but he's not going to listen to this. Fire David Bell. Which is a great segue to uh, what we're going to talk about next, which is uh, a hot start by the Reds. And we was under. all picked the Reds who have a that's gonna, that's gonna be a problem. Uh, yeah, losing record, a good problem in the first forty games. I mean, for my <laughs> yeah. record to come through, they have we'll to see. go eleven uh, and twenty-three. We hope that it will be a problem, but um, <laughs> the Reds are off to a hot start. They're they're five and one. Um, and they're they're going on a very the Reds have struggled historically on the West Coast, but they're going to Arizona and San Francisco, which for you late night owls like Casey, uh, you will see never any of these games. Um, but some of us will stay up and have some cocktails and watch some <laughs> late night baseball, which is uh one of my favorite things. Well, it was ten years ago. Now it's harder. Um the Reds are five and one. The offense is working. The pitching is working. The bullpen is hasn't had to do much, but they've done well. The only bullpen guy that hasn't pitched well right now is Amir Garrett. And he hasn't been put in a situation where he has any um adrenaline flowing because none of the games that they've won have been close. And on that same note, Rysel Iglesias came into a tie game yesterday. And give up two on home run. So, if you are listening out there, Angels fans, don't pitch Rysel Iglesias in tie games. It's just not a good idea because it's not his. It's not his. It's not his bag. Initial responses to the Reds. Uh, well, actually, we gotta go. We got. Matt's been waiting for this. For I mean, I think for not that long. The but, offense uh, is. Um... The offense, uh, to me, is the takeaway um, from, granted, a very small sample size. Um, these guys are good offensively. And I think when you give them a full spring training to get ready to play, they can come out and show that they're ready to play. And that didn't happen last year. Now, will this carry over for the next 156 games? No, it's, they're obviously not going to keep up the pace that they're on right now. But, um, I mean, what, five, four? I think three of the six games they put up ten runs or more. Um, now, granted, two of them we got the Pirates. But the offense is rolling, and – I love, I absolutely love what I've seen from some of the guys that I didn't know a lot about 
um, specifically a guy like Jonathan India. He's been fantastic. Um, this Tyler Naquin or whatever his name is has has been very good the last two nights. Um, but yes, um, the offense is great. The pitching's been been solid outside of really one half inning in the first game of the year where, like Brian said, they could have really limited the damage without an error by Suarez at short. So um, not a whole lot of complaints so far. I mean, they're, they're playing good baseball and hopefully they can keep it up. I mean, Cassianos is the guy right now through six games that they were hoping they signed that he was not this guy last year. He had bright spots last year, but I don't know if he had a six-game stretch like he's had so far. Um, Okay. He hit seven home runs in the first 14 games last year, and then he hit six the rest of the year. No, and that's fine. So, yes, he did. and that's, that's I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to I did not know. dump water yeah, on He started I, I, hot last year. But they didn't. did not know that. As a team, but, they didn't. But I would, ex- <laughs> I would expect him – again, I, I – It's not uh, on the back of the And I'm very well maybe wrong, but I would expect the Reds' offense to continue to produce at a very high level given – that they had the spring training to get warmed up and to get ready to go. And that's, that's all I've been saying for the last year is that I don't think you can take last year at face value. And that I very well, maybe you're wrong, but that's, that's all I'm going to say. No, I think to your point, I think that um, Nick Castellanos is a man on a mission. Um, he, he has a sense of, it's been talked about by the, I mean, granted it's the Reds broadcast team, but, uh, that when they mention, when anyone mentions the top hitters in baseball, he wants his name to be in there. And I think he worked tirelessly, endlessly to be better. And hopefully these results are showing what that work was. Um, because if he can. I mean, he's not going to keep up what he's doing right now for a whole year, but if he can be a 300-plus hitter and 50 doubles and 30 – I mean – Right, but the crazy numbers. thing he is, just, like, you've got a couple produce, players that have been playing out of their mind, but Votto has not done really anything yet. Suarez has not done anything yet. Senzel has just started to hit within the last day, really. Like, um, yeah, I, I think this offense, you know – Obviously, they're doing way better than anybody could have hoped for. You're not expecting them to score 10 runs a game. But I think the the output is is kind of what we thought was possible. And like we discussed last week or two weeks ago, I don't remember. Um, I think the thing that makes this possible is the decision to move Suarez to short, put Moustakas at third, and open up second base. And, and, I mean, Jonathan India has been – uh, I mean, he has been unbelievable in the first week of the season. If he, if he can keep, he's not going to keep the pace he's hitting at right now. But I mean, if if he can be half of what he's doing right now, you would take that in a heartbeat. 
Yeah. Jonathan Eddy has been a, a discovery. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked on this podcast about the reluctancy of the Reds to move Suarez to shortstop. And at the time, we said, well, they didn't have options. But one of the options was to move Senzel into second and then have an outfield of Shogo Akiyama, Nick Castellanos, and Jesse Winker with a bench bat of Aristides Aquino, who already has. We didn't know who he was. And then we didn't talk about Nate. He wasn't leading the National League in homers and RBIs. Right. And he wasn't probably on the roster two weeks ago. Uh, Right. Um, So kudos to the Reds for it. Well, actually kudos to Jonathan India for forcing the Reds hand. Uh, He, we don't see what guys are doing in spring training. We read about it. We hear about it. Um, But I mean, this guy looks like he's the real deal. And yes, he was a former top six pick um, out of the University of Florida. He didn't come out of nowhere, and I guess he had an unhealthy minor league season and looked great at the alternate site last year at Prasco Park. But And then an injury kept him from coming up last year when I guess probably – uh, Jose Garcia came up. It doesn't matter. Uh, but I mean, this guy, like in the field, at the plate, like he's been incredible. And yes, pitchers are going to make adjustments, but what an incredible start for him. Good for him. Good for the Reds. Five and one. Uh, just keep keep winning series, um, especially winnable games. And it's got to be talked about. The flex, Nick Castellanos flexing on the Cardinals was a Fuck moment em. that should and will live in infamy. Uh, I mean, fuck the Cardinals. How happy are you fuck guys Yachty that we have arena. like I'm just so players that arguably are like his, well like, for the Bengals' case, definitely the leader of the team, but in the Reds' case, one of the leaders of the team that just has attitude and is like, no, screw this, like we're good and and I don't care about you, like we're just gonna ram it down your throat with Castellanos and, and Burrow. It's a nice change. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's a huge change. It's fun to watch. And I mean, I hope this team continues to be fun to watch. Um, today, like they played this afternoon. So like this evening, I was a little bit like, depression because I didn't get to watch the Reds score 12 or 14 runs this evening. Yeah, but the great thing about them being on in the West is we can watch the Masters all day and then watch the Red Legs at night. uh, Except on Sunday. I have to dual screen that. Exactly. Yeah. Good planning. It's like we've done this before, Sox. I mean, we're segueing tonight. Like, just absolute champs uh like we've done this like we've done this before the masters it's here uh brian chase is our returning <sighs> masters champion oh, um, good. yeah we should have done mm. a masters dinner brian yeah you should have told us what we had to next eat. time ball dropped opportunity next year 
We got to write this down. Uh, so, having said that, we have a Masters bet. I, I've got them right in front majors. of me, and, and I'm just gonna put it out there that I don't do you feel nearly as confident as my in my team right. this go round as I did back in November. Um, but Matt laid it out for us in different tiers. We picked six players from six different tiers. Um, so I, I'll just give you a rundown who I've got. I've got JT from tier one. Yes. I think he's, uh, obviously coming off the players a couple of weeks ago. He, he looks good. Um, I've, I picked Paul Casey in my second tier just because I feel like he is literally always in contention at the masters. And it could have just been that I was drunk when I was doing this, and and I maybe that's not true, but I feel like that's how he always is. Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. Um, and then I have recency bias in my tier three selection. I watched Scotty Scheffler play really well at the uh, Dell Technologies match play a couple weeks ago, so I, I picked him. And then I picked – I did a – I was in this, like, fantasy – golf league probably like five or six years ago. And um, for some reason I, I picked Kevin Kisner earlier in the year and that was the year that he really started to play well. And I've kind of been a fan of his since then. So I picked him in my tier four and then going back to the Dell match play, I picked Brian Harmon as my tier five player. And I have Sox's favorite player uh, and my dad's favorite player after his victory last week, Jordan Spieth as my uh, as my tier six guy. Sox, go ahead, buddy. Good lineup. We have two. We have two in common. At the top, and at the bottom. Uh, so I will start with JT as well. I like. JT coming off an emotional victory at the players. Um, JT JT has all talent in the world, and um, he had some a little bit of turmoil this year, his own doing, and then also uh, went through some emotional stuff, lost his grandfather, and then um, also he's a good friend of Tiger Woods, and was struggling with Tiger's accident a little Quick bit. Quick question on, on JT. So together, obviously he's really one of the players. What majors has players. he won? Uh, PGA. Really? That's all he's won at this point. Yeah. It feels like he's in, he's in contention every week and the PGA or every major. I mean, that just the PGA in 2017 or something like that. He won the FedEx Cup, didn't he? Or yeah. am I imagining that? Okay. And how did he did? He had a nice showing last year uh, at Augusta. Tier two. I'm going with Brooks Kepka. Hopefully, he's uh, back from injury, and uh, the guy that was winning nothing but majors for. A little while. Socks, it sounds like Tier you're picking three, my team from November, buddy. My guy, Hideki Matsuyama. I think I had Brooks, yeah. And I had Matsuyama. 
Did you have Brooks? I think I had uh, Matsuyama too. I feel like he's another guy that's in contention at Augusta. Um, tier four, this was a strategy pick because I'm pretty sure he's going to be on Matt's team. So it took Jason Kokrak just for the idea that he's going to be on Matt's team. And Matt's shaking his head that he's on his team. So that strategy did not work. But uh, what I was trying to do there was just match Matt. So if he makes the cut, it's the same. If he misses the cut, um, it's the same. But that's a fail. Tier 5, Mackenzie Hughes. Only because I didn't see a lot of other names in Tier 5 that I was really thrilled about. And... Mackenzie Hughes <laughs> just spoke to me. Um, he sounds like he'd be a good golfer. And then uh, tier six, Jordan Speed. I mean, the uh, the odds number two as of a couple days ago, uh, odds may have fallen, but to get him at tier six was a extreme value by yeah. The, Guessing yep. so all three of us. I got uh I'm, I'm differential on tier one. I have DJ in tier one, um, as opposed to JT. I am with Brian in tier two, and then I have Paul Casey in tier three. I got the South African, Mr. Louis Oosthuizen. Matt um, loves him some Louis Oosthuizen. He plays he plays well at Augusta. Uh, he does. Tier four, I got my guy, Justin Rose. Again, yeah. another guy who plays well uh, at Augusta. I'm, he yeah, does. He does. I thought in. about it. Tier, he was on my team last year, I think. Yeah. And tier five, I got Cooch. Thought about it. And so. tier I six, I'm with right. everybody else. Uh, can't not pick Jordan Spieth. It's crazy. Um, I was just listening to you guys talk. Um, tier four, Matt, who, who did you say you had? I got Rose. Rose. Yeah, I almost picked him. And then tier five, I was between Kucher and Harmon. And uh, Sox, tier two, you've got uh, Brooks. I almost looked at him. And then Matsuyama in tier three. So it, it's, it's, I'm glad that we didn't all pick the same guys. Yeah. Um, it would have been a lot of fun if we, if there was, if there was literally two or three degrees of separation between us, yeah. we had probably yeah. like four, five to oh, six. But like, if there was, if this whole thing swung on three players, it it would have been kind of crazy just to watch one player all weekend who is in the middle of the field, but you're hoping he makes the cut. And then uh, we got around Saturday, but not necessarily being yeah. attention. Like, it just I got yeah, two other questions after this, but um, that you guys don't know about. Um, but what is your winning score? <laughs> so is mine. <laughs> right. I got minus 13. Mine's minus so, 14. So that, and then we have two questions that you were not made aware of. These are um, just in, in the event of a tiebreaker. Uh, which I don't know how that even is going to work, but we'll figure it out. So 
Uh, first is what hole? What hole will the first birdie be made on in the 2021 Masters? Can you give us an, uh, a clue as to who the first group is? Uh, sure. First group off is um, Michael Thompson and Hudson Swafford. That does me a lot of good. That's why it's a good, this is an interesting question. Next group is Sandy Lyle, Dylan Fratelli, no, there's no, and there's no birdies in that group. Matt Jones. All right. Uh, I was going to say it'll be in that group. Um, Dylan Fratelli birdies too. I'm trying to. Hold on. Yeah, curveball. And how is this? We're just adding it to the. If he answers something completely different, like who? There's no. There's no winner. So everybody everybody starts on hole one. So I love the question. Yeah, Uh, but I don't know that this necessarily. Everybody starts on hole one. It's going to be one or two. uh, So I'll say I'll say one. Doctor saying two. I'll say, well, I'll, say, I mean, I'll say three. I'll say three. It's not going to get three. past. Yeah, I don't think it's going to get past two. Price is right at the shit out of me. I'll say three. It's all good. And then Which the next question is, how many, how many 50-year-olds make the cut? 50-plus-year-olds right. make the cut. I can, you, can you give us a list of who is in the tournament that's 50-plus? I mean, I can Fred Couples, I'm assuming. Couples is in Bernard Longer. Yeah, he's in Couples, Longer, BJ Singh. No, I'm saying Bernard Longer um, makes the cut. Phil, um, Sandy Lyle. Phil. So, all right, I'll give you zero, one, or two plus. I'll go one. I'll go two. So Sox says two plus. I like this one. Jeez. Um, I'll say uh, I'll say one as well. All right. So we got our picks. We got our picks in. All right. Well, it's going to be an exciting round or an exciting yeah. weekend uh, of golf. And it's going to be a lot different than it was in November. Although I would have been tempted to run it back with, with my squad. Um, but different conditions, just a completely different golf tournament um, than it was. So. Anybody got anything else? I mean, we had Rick, we had Breads, we had 
golf. We got a bottle major. of bourbon, got, right? Oh, I was oh, thinking. Oh, I was actually thinking about. We can chat about this. I was thinking we can either do bottle of bourbon per major, or we could do the four majors together and do like a good bottle of bourbon. Why don't we just do both? We could do that too. Let's do both. It's a it's it's the SIP cup. Like the PGA. Yeah. It's it's, it's the SIP cup tournament, yeah. and then it's also a season. Oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. The SIP there Cup. Boom. All right. So we got that. Um Hold on. Just for fun, because we did it to Rick. Um, let's do a shoot it, sip it, and toss it for making the cut this weekend. Um, we got to throw some popular players out there. Um, All right, we each throw a player. I got to look. Hold on. That could be borderline. It. I'll throw out Phil Mickelson. Matt, you got a player? Uh, mine's Rory. That's a good one. Um, okay, I'll say uh, Kucher. Ooh. Ooh. I am shooting Kucher. I like that. I'm sipping Rory. And I am throwing Phil Mickelson to the Wolves. <laughs> I am shooting Rory. Yeah, Sox. Sipping uh, I was going to do the same as you, but I'll change it up. I, I, too, am shooting Rory. I'll sip Phil. Phil knows his way around this course. And I mean, it's it, he was my guy last year until Saturday, and then things fell apart. But he it's made the cut, and I year. will toss Cooch. <laughs> I would have been better if he didn't make the cut. I still held on, though. You would have been better if he didn't make the cut. Shit, he should have missed it. <laughs> Isn't that always like the worst when you're no, like, man. oh, my God, I made the cut. Five oh, over, right? On Saturday, I could have taken the 76 or whatever. What's the number? Five yeah. Eight. All right. I think it's time to end right, the podcast. Well, now we're getting into nonsense, uh, but that was fun. So, see ya. Unless we got anything else.